next lecture is God's judgment. Is there a subject more offensive than God's judgment? Often put off because it is so off-putting, one who is truly willing to teach on judgment runs the risk of himself being labeled a judgmental individual. Harsh, with a negative temperament. A preacher who's looking to maximize the number of amens and aliltas received on a Sunday morning will by no means choose this as his topic, will he? We, like the Israelites of old, are ever looking to find that prophet who is willing to say, peace, peace with little regard for the veracity of such proclamations. It's what we find all across our city, right? People gathering them to themselves, prophets and apostles who will say, peace, peace. And if we could zoom in on the millions of relationships all across Addis Ababa, we would find countless individuals challenging personal friends' character issues only to hear the response, don't judge me. The Bible, spanning from Genesis to Revelation, posits judgment as one of the most pronounced categories. It is inescapable in the pages of Scripture, and it is also inescapable in each and every one of our own lives. As we've seen in chapter 3, God is just, and therefore he must deal with sin. God's judgment flows from his justice. In the Old Testament, God judged Adam and Eve, and he cast them out of the garden. Then, not long thereafter, God judged the world for its wickedness by sending a great flood to wipe out creation, save Noah's family and the animals that were on the ark. We find this in Genesis chapter 6 and 7. In judgment, God rained down fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah, completely destroying the cities and all of its people. God judges Egypt for their sin and thus delivers the Israelites from, from slavery. At Sinai, God established a covenant with Israel and he gives them his law. We can find this in Exodus chapters 19 through 23. He says, according to this law, if you keep it, you will live and you will be my people. If you break it, you shall die under judgment. Then when in the wilderness of Korah and his band of, of men rebelled against Moses, God caused the very earth underneath their feet to open up and swallow them alive. We find this in Numbers 26.10. And then Israel, after conquering Jericho, is brought into judgment with God for disobeying his command when Achan stole some of the silver and gold that was supposed to be devoted to God. Do you remember that? In consequence, when Israel next goes into battle, they lose. They lose the battle at the hands of their enemies. And they remain under the judgment of God until Achan and all of his family are stoned to death. His entire family is stoned to death and burned with fire. That's Joshua 7. In Leviticus, God promises to reward faithfulness and obedience. But he also promises to judge them if they persist in their disobedience. He will judge them by handing them over. Listen to this. This is God's judgment in 26.38. Leviticus 26.38. He will judge them by handing them over to perish at the hands of their enemies. Throughout the Old Testament, we see Israel persisting in their sin only to, to find themselves finally overthrown by Assyria in 722 B.C. 
find this in 2 Kings 17, 6 through 7. From this point, they were scattered among the pagans, the surviving Israelites. They were scattered in judgment amongst the pagans, and their intermingling, marrying with those pagan empires, produced the cursed Samaritans. Who were the Samaritans? The Samaritans were people who had offspring with pagan nations. It was Jews marrying unbelieving pagans and having children. They produced a cursed race of people, the Samaritans. Judah, however, is preserved, but then also sent into Babylonian exile under judgment in 2 Kings 17. Then we come to the New Testament and we see that God continues to judge. In Luke 10, Christ declares, Woe to the cities of Israel. So Christ himself is bringing judgment, declarations of judgment, even in the New Testament. He declares woe to the cities of Israel and he foretells that their judgment will be worse than that of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Matthew 23, Christ tells the religious leaders of Israel that they will be held accountable in judgment for all of the righteous blood shed on earth. That's remarkable. The leaders, the religious leaders, not kings, the religious leaders of Israel will be held accountable in judgment for all the righteous blood shed on earth, according to Matthew 23, 35. And then in the very next chapter, he foretells of the judgment to come to Israel that it will be destroyed. And then we find that it was destroyed in 70 A.D. And then, more than the judgment of cities and civilizations, the New Testament zooms in on the category of person and final judgment. God not only judges countries, he judges individuals. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. There will be a final day when God judges every single human that has ever lived. According to Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, he says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the book according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged. Each one of them according to what they had done done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And the method of this final judgment, he will render to each one according to his works, according to Romans 2.6. The secret of men's hearts will be judged too, according to Romans 2.16. For those whose names are not written in the book of life, the judgment that each individual receives is that of hell, an everlasting hell, and this is final judgment. Every sin ever committed, finally accounted for. Nothing forgotten. Nothing Nothing left out. 
question often asked of Christians is this, why do bad things happen to good people? And interestingly enough, Jesus says no one is good except for God alone. He says that in Mark 10, 18. And as we saw at the end of the last chapter, the Bible teaches that there is none who seeks God, no one who is righteous, there is no one who does good, not even one. We find this in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. A more biblically informed question might be this. Why does God let good things happen to bad people? In essence, if the wages of sin is death, why does God not strike us down immediately when we sin? After a while of sinning, we become accustomed to practicing sin. It starts to feel like it doesn't really care. he doesn't really care. He's not going to do anything about it. Like he, he, he's, not going to, he's not concerned with it. There's no shortage of examples of unrighteous men who have successful lives, which have been built upon unrighteous gain. As we search for answers, we cannot forget that God is long-suffering. That is, he is patient. He's not willing that any should perish, according to 2 Peter 3.9. At the beginning of the Bible, there is a verse that could easily be overlooked in Genesis 15. It draws our attention to God's long-suffering attitude towards the Canaanites, leading up to Israelites, the Israel's conquest of Canaan. At the beginning of the chapter, God promises Abram that he will be given his own biological son, and that son will be his heir. We find this in chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. And he says, From this son, a great nation as numerous of the as the stars will be birthed. In chapter 15, verse 5. And it says, Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. In chapter 15, verse 6. After this, there's a second half to God's promise concerning the possession of the land, which is a repetition of the same promise as given in Genesis 12, 5, when God declares, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. God then establishes a covenant with Abraham saying, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment to the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. And this is what he says. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Genesis 15, 13 through 16. Why do I bring up this text? Why do I bring up this text? I bring up this text to draw attention to two things. God is patient or long-suffering towards sinners. Concerning sin or iniquity, his patience does have a limit. There is a tipping point with God. Those are the two things. God is patient and long-suffering towards sinners, but... Number two, concerning sin or iniquity, his patience does have a limit. There's a tipping point with God. That is, there is an allotted wholeness or measure of sin with which God will practice patience. But once sin has reached its wholeness, God brings judgment. This is nowhere more evident and plainly articulated than it is right here in Genesis chapter 15. God's 
patience and the tipping point. God's patience. God had a special gift for Abram and his future descendants. This this gift was the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. But his descendants would need to be slaves. Listen, the Israelites had to be slaves for 400 years before they could receive this gift, before they could receive the inheritance of their land. Why? In short, because God is long-suffering. That's why. Why did they have to wait 400 years? Because God is long-suffering. The text doesn't come out and say that. But my question for you is, can you, can you see it? Can you see it in the text? Another people group, those referred to as the Amorites in chapter 15, they were living in Canaan, and God was not ready to take it away from them, even for his very own chosen people. The reason for that is because he's long-suffering. God was not prepared to execute undeserved wrath upon a people, even though he intended to give their land to Israel. Instead, he would bring his people, the Israelites, to Egypt, something of an incubator for a time. He would let them grow in number. Unlike an incubator, however, Egypt was anything but safe. It was not a safe place for them, was it? Rather, it was harsh, and the Israelites became a downtrodden people. They were sojourners. They were strangers who felt the realities of their suffering every single day. Nothing about them, nothing while they were in Egypt gave them the appearance of the people for God's own possession. Nevertheless, that they were, and it was God's intention to give them the land that belonged to the Amorites but not until the Amorites had reached the measure of their sin. How long would that take? Approximately 400 years. And so for 400 years, while God was practicing patience toward the Amorites, the Israelites suffered. That's 400 years of suffering. Contrast that number with the history of the United States. United States of America hasn't even existed for 400 years yet. But as I think it's safe to say and and to believe and to walk away, that God is very, very, very patient. Even practicing long-suffering, even towards his enemies, even towards you and I, even towards our people. God's patience does expire. There is a point in which it does run out. There would be an end to God's patience with the Amorites. The day would come when his patience would run out. The sin of the Amorites would reach its allotted measure, and when it did, God would pour out divine judgment upon the inhabitants of Canaan in the form of an invading nation, that of Israel, his very own people. But this is the case may be seen in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 5, when the invading Israelites were divinely instructed as to the reason for their occupation. Not because of your righteousness, he says to them, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God is driving them out from before you, And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. You see that? 
They were not going to acquire this land. They weren't going to receive it because of their own righteousness. But to show the glory of God. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land. Free grace. Free grace in the Old Testament. But this is not a one-time action of God, but rather his normal mode of practicing patience upon sin may be demonstrated in multiple places. We can see this in Daniel chapter 8, verse 23. You can turn if you have your Bibles. At the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. So here in Daniel 8.23, we see that transgressors, sinners, have an allotted limit of sin, that God will practice patience towards them, but then once it's reached, he will raise up judgment. Daniel 8, 23. Matthew 23, 32. Matthew 23, 32. This is Christ himself. Let's start in verse 31. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. And he says in verse 32, Fill up then the measure of your father, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you going to escape being sentenced to hell? So they have an allotted measure of sin that God will allow them to sin. And once that sin has been met, hell will be the outcome. First Thessalonians 2.16. Start in verse 14. This is Paul talking. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as did, as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove, drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. Listen to this, verse 16. By hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. They had an allotted amount of sin that, they, that God practiced long-suffering with them, and now they have reached it. Nevertheless, it is evident that his practice is not an eternal well. His patience is not an eternal well, but it, it does dry up. God's patience dries up. And when that well is dried up, wrath is poured out. A terrifying application for us is the fact that we do not know. This city does not know. Individuals do not know what point God says enough is enough. Listen, nobody told the Amorites they had 400 years. Over that that period of time, the Amorites had no idea that every moment of every day they were filling up the measure of sin that God had allotted to practice patience towards. 
They were living ordinary lives, getting married, having children, working, eating, drinking, and sleeping. And then one day, judgment came. Every sin along the way was counted. Every sin along the way was marked and remembered. Remember, according to Romans 2.6, he will render to each one according to his works. Every moment of every day is remembered. The ones we forget, the moments and hours from our long-gone youth when we were just children, those moments are currently live-streaming in the mind of God in heaven, never forgotten. With each passing day, the amount of wrath that each individual is storing up for himself, it is ever incrementally increasing. there's varying levels of wrath that are to be received. You can say that everyone will end up in one of two eternal destinations, either in heaven or in hell. But even in hell, there will be those whose punishment is worse. And all the kindness God shows towards sinners, all the patience he has practiced towards them, it too will serve as a witness against them. All that kindness, that kindness was meant to lead to repentance, but instead it has only given sinners more time to sin against the gracious one. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. He says, Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. <laughs> give a brief illustration of how little we often seem to esteem final judgment. I want you to imagine, if you will, with me, showing up to work, and everyone is there to surprise you, your friends, your family, your co-workers, and they bring you into a dark room and they say, today we're going to celebrate your life. Before you know it, a, a film of your entire life begins to play. And at first, it's clips of your infancy. And everyone is drawing attention to how cute you used to be. But soon you're simply just a whining two-year-old, throwing fits. Throwing temper tantrums. Nobody thinks you're adorable anymore. And eventually, the film gets to your childhood and to your teenage years. To your surprise, the film even has a narrator explaining your inner thoughts and attitudes, even your inner imaginations, sexual ones included. There they are portrayed on the film. Everything is seen. Everything is revealed. If truth be told, you would get up and you would run out of that room never to be seen again. Friends, if our lives cannot stand up to the scrutiny of man, how in the world will we ever stand before a holy and righteous God? He has a book, and our deeds, our thoughts, they're being written in that book, according to Revelation 20, verse 12. And the scary thing is, what if, what if God's judgment comes before the deathbed? 
When I was in high school, I remember listening to a speaker talk about the urgency of repenting and believing in Jesus right now because tomorrow, tomorrow's not promised. I remember going back to, to our room. We were on a, a school retreat. And my friend and I, we were sitting there talking on our beds about it. He, he was a, a drug dealer. He loved to party. His was a life of sex and drinking and smoking. And I asked him what he thought about what he had heard. Was he going to repent? Was he going to believe? And he said, yes, yes I am, but not right now. I want to enjoy life a little bit longer. I want to enjoy women. When I'm older, I'll do that. When I'm older, I will repent. In his mind, he thought he had many years to take time and repent when he felt like he had enjoyed enough of sin once he had had his fill. But as we've seen above, God's patience has an expiration date. It's true, it is very true, that God is ready to receive whosoever believes in him at any moment, even the final moment before you die. But what if judgment comes to our people before the deathbed? What if for some of our people, judgment begins in this life? What if God hands some of our people over to a love of sin and says, okay, you want your sin? Go ahead and have it. And in the process, their love for sin so blinds them and hardens their heart that they become, it becomes impossible for them to believe in Jesus because of the hardness of their heart. As we saw in chapter 2 of Romans, God does judge people this way. He gives them over so their mind stops working depraved mind? Do we have a category of God giving people over so that their mind just does not work anymore? They can't. It's impossible to repent. He gives them over to a depraved mind. Let's look again at this concept a little bit closer. The book of Romans teaches this in chapter 1, verses 24 through 31. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not to have done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. See what's going on in the text there? Because sinners so love their sin, God is giving them up to a debased mind. They cannot think right thoughts about God. They cannot think right thoughts about life. Often we preach that God is going to judge sins. We say, we, we say when we evangelize people, God is going to judge sins contained in the list from these biblical passages. He's going, to, he's going to judge these kinds of people. 
tell, we tell people that God is going to judge homosexuals. God's going to judge murderers. He's going to judge liars. He's going to judge all evil. And yes, indeed, he will judge. But what this text is teaching us right here is that those who are practicing such things are already under the judgment of God. The very practice of homosexuality, according to this text, in and of itself, is already the judgment of God. Their brains are darkened and they, they can't think straight. That's judgment. That's terrifying judgment. And as a result, in their blindness and the hardness of heart, they pursue sin more and more and more passionately. They get to the point that they can't even see that they are sinning. They become blind to God's word and they're unable to hear. Gossiping is in this list. Talking about people in a negative way behind their backs. Things you would never say to their face. Causing strife. Arguing with people. Boasting. Being heartless towards the poor and the oppressed. Individuals practicing things. These things are already under the judgment of God. My friend that I told you about, it's been nearly 20 years since we had that conversation. I think it has maybe been 18 years since we had that conversation. And knowing something of him, he, lo he loves his sin more today than he did on that day. What if God today, some of our people, some of our friends, what if today they reach that point of no return? What if today they reach the measure of their sins and God gives them utterly over to a debased mind. There's an urgency about these things, is there not? We, th we think people have until they, they die. We think they have until the moment of, of final breath. And, and there's a sense in which they do. But if your heart has been turned to stone, you can't hear, right? Judgment doesn't, doesn't just start when we die. Yes. I think the, the gospel's offered to everybody, right? Whosoever believes. That's, that's how it always comes. Whosoever. But, but there, what my point is, and I think the point of, of Paul, is that you can be given over to a debased mind so that you, you can't comprehend these things. You can't understand them. Uh, and that's being under the judgment of God already. Do, have you guys read Pilgrim's Progress? The most terrifying moment in that text for me is when, when, when uh, uh, Christian enters into um, 
that home, and he's shown a number of things. And in one scene, he's shown a man in a, in a cage. And he says, I can't repent because I've, I've, uh, I've sinned against the grace of God. Do you remember that? That, that used to terrify me. <coughs> I think that's what it's getting at. He, he's, so, he's so committed to sin in the face of grace that it's impossible for him to repent. His heart has been so hardened. Right? He can't believe. dwelling upon it very long. Let's talk about the case of missing judgment from the Old Testament. The case of missing judgment. Back in the last lecture, we considered the apparent contradiction between God's mercy and his justice, that these looked like dueling attributes. Even though we said that's impossible, it has the appearance of being dueling attributes. And we've seen that from the beginning, God in his justice judges sin from, from the beginning, right? From the garden. He told Adam and Eve that they would die if they ate the forbidden fruit and they are dead. God's justice was carried out. Not to mention all the other examples we started this lecture with throughout the Bible. In 2 Samuel, however, we see this problem of mercy versus justice coming to something of a climax in the Old Testament. King David, the man after God's own heart, is not so young and innocent anymore. He is the king of all of Israel. And in the springtime, the text says, when all the kings were going off to war, David sticks around in Jerusalem. One afternoon, while walking on the roof of his house, he sees this beautiful woman named Bathsheba, the beautiful wife of another man. And while she was bathing on the roof, he watched her and he sent his messengers to bring her to him, and then he had sexual relations with her. Later on, she became pregnant. And King David, to hide his sin, he orders the death of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, in order to protect himself from being caught as the adulterer that he was. <laughs> now here's where things come to a head. In the Old Testament, the governing law for Israel was God's law, right? It wasn't just a moral law. It was also the civil law. It was the law that was given on Mount Sinai. And in that law, there were low-handed, we might say, and high-handed sins. High-handed sins. Numbers 15, 27 through 31 is a crucial text for us. This is what it reads. If one person sins unintentionally, it's what I'm going to call a low-handed sin. That's my own verbiage. A low-handed sin. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat, a person old he shall offer a female goat, a year old, for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for the, before the Lord for the person who makes the mistake. When he sins unintentionally, to make atonement for him. And the text says, and he shall be forgiven. The text goes on, though, and it says, but the person who does anything with a high hand. So now we're talking about a different kind of sin. Whether he is a native 
or a sojourner, one traveling through, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person, the text says, shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. And just to be clear, to be cut off is to be taken out of the camp and stoned to death. The very next verse, after God speaks about high and low-handed sins, a man is seen picking up sticks, picking up sticks on the Sabbath. That's Saturday, the day of rest. Some might presume that this would have been considered a low-handed sin in the eyes of God. Simply picking up sticks to make a fire on the Sabbath. But God took this as a very serious sin, and he commanded that that person be stoned to death for that offense. That is, it was a high-handed offense. Picking up sticks on the Sabbath was considered high-handed in the eyes of God's law. In summary, a low-handed sin was one that could be atoned for or forgiven through sacrifice. A high-handed sin, on the other hand, was one that could not be atoned for with animal sacrifice, and also which could not, would not, be forgiven. The penalty was always death for high-handed sins. Let's get back to David. As you can see for yourselves, in Leviticus 20, verse 10, it explicitly states, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Leviticus 20, verse 10, because it's a high-handed sin. What is more, under the same law, Leviticus 24, 17 reads this, Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. David's sin about adultery with Bathsheba and his murdering of Uriah were both high-handed sins. So as you can see, according to God himself, God's own law, God's own law, David finds himself in the position of deserving two death penalties. He deserves the death penalty twice over. He has committed two high-handed sins. He has two verdicts of guilty and therefore two death penalties hanging over his head. Suddenly it makes sense, his prayer in Psalm 51, doesn't it? His prayer in Psalm 51, which said, For I know my transgressions, I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy. All he knows is this death penalty, and he says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken. That's stoning, right? Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. This is what he says. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. He's supposed to be cut off. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, 
and uphold me with a willing spirit. I've got a couple of observations. Firstly, David sees his sin as a direct offense against God. It was not primarily those who he hurt with his sin, and he hurt many people, including his nation. And we know from other verses in the Old Testament that he did care deeply about the devastating effects of his sin on the lives of others. We can see this in 2 Samuel 24, 17. But here, David, David's sin causes him to look at the one that he has most affect, affected or offended. And that was God. Sin is always, always, always against God. It is an act of defiant rebellion against him. And then secondly, David was concerned about the divine judgment that he knew that he deserved. In so many churches, David is portrayed as the moral example, the model, right? Let's go kill our giants like David. We should mimic him. And then King Saul is posited to us and put before us as that evil fool that we should all avoid being. My question for you is, were these two individuals all that different from one another? I don't think so. And it doesn't appear that David thought so either. Concerning sin, it appears that David saw himself just like Saul. In this text from Psalm 51, we see in verse 11 that David is afraid of receiving the same judgment that Saul himself received. Remember, Saul tasted deeply of the things of God, so much so that he prophesied and people considered himself, him to be a prophet. We see this in 1 Samuel 10, 10 through 11 and 1 Samuel 19, 24. But when he sinned, the Holy Spirit departed from Saul and God sent an evil spirit to tor torment him instead and in place of the Holy Spirit. We find this in 1 Samuel 16, 14. Saul was cast away, and he ultimately died in judgment under God. David is here praying to God that he would not do to him what he had previously done to the previous king, to Saul. He's afraid of being cut off from God and having the Holy Spirit ripped away from him. David knows that he deserves the judgment of God, and he's not looking for loopholes. The law of God doesn't provide for any loopholes for him to escape. He's looking righteous judgment right in the face and he's pleading. He's begging for mercy. He knows that God will by no means pardon the guilty. Numbers 14, 18. He knows that he deserves sentence of death. But David was not put to death, was he? What happened to him? 2 Samuel chapter 12, God sends a prophet. He sends the prophet Nathan to confront David in his sin. And after being exposed, and that's important, David was exposed. He didn't come forward. He's not the man that's often put forward to us in the church, just this wonderful man. David was a bad man, and he was confronted in his sin. After being exposed, only after being exposed, coming forward on his own, David confesses his sin to the prophet. And the prophet Nathan says this to him. 
The Lord has put away your sin. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. So the question is this. The question of God's missing judgment. If God put away David's sin, where did he put it? Where did the righteous judge put David's sin? He himself has already said, I will by no means clear the guilty. That's repeated in the Old Testament. Sin must be dealt with in judgment. Sinners must be judged by a righteous judge, the righteous judge of all the earth. So what does this mean? It's a question you have to ask yourself. Is God unjustly playing favorites? Is he unjustly forgiving David? But not Saul. Where did God put David's sin? Where's the justice of God in this story? Where's the divine judgment? 